name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Holy Mary Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Brethren Amen. in Christ, love day to Jesus Christus in secula. This is Timothy Flanders with the meaning of Catholic. Jesus is King. Happy to be joined today by an esteemed guest, Dr. Larry Chap. <laughs> Dr. Chap, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm glad to be called esteemed. I've been called much worse. Yeah, well, uh, well, we always like to welcome our guests in, in the most uh, honorable <laughs> way possible here at Meaning of Catholic. If you don't know Dr. Larry Chap, he received his doctorate in theology from Fordham University in 1994 with a specialization in the works of Hans Urs von Balthasar, the persona non grata among many. Oh, I'm boy. Sure oh, yeah. I'm sure that'll come up. Uh, Dr. Chap taught theology for 20 years at DeSalle University near Allentown, Pennsylvania. DeSales. 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 Thank you. Yeah. Uh, before retiring from teaching in 2013 to open Dorothy Day Catholic Worker Farm. Uh oh, he's a, he, he's a Catholic worker as well. We'll, we'll get into that. Two as well. strikes. Two strikes. <laughs> uh, near Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania. He also runs the blog Gaudium et Spes. So we'll be talking today about new trads who love Vatican II. Who are they? Well, we're talking to one right now, Dr. Chap. And he and a few others have signed a new manifesto. Actually, the, the actual wording is, is it the manifesto of the new traditionalism? Is that? Yeah, uh, I, I think it's the new a, minute. A, a manifesto of uh, the new traditionalism. I sometimes get it wrong, too. Or the manifesto of, of a new traditionalism. I don't know. Okay, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a manifesto espousing uh, a new traditionalism. Excellent. Yes, so we're going to get into that today, and uh, we just want to remind everyone, meaning of Catholic, this lay apostolate is designed for conversations such as this. That's what we are about. We are about uniting Catholics against me, the enemies of the Holy Church, and that involves restoring the rival schools of Christendom. So this is a place for all Catholics who are Orthodox Catholics to come and debate, dispute, discuss, dialogue whatever it is that we want to discuss. And that includes going into controversial things and different things that we may disagree about. And so that's why we have Dr. Chap on. So we're going to be talking about this new manifesto, which is, um, I don't know if you, uh, it is addressing in particular a certain uh, group of people called the, what, which this manifesto calls the rupturist trads or rupturist traditionalists. And we'll get into that. Uh, but first, we want to get into what is not not just the sort of the negative piece, but the positive. What is this manifesto trying to say? And have you, Dr. Chap, elaborate on what it's trying to say? So um, I sure. wanted to just start with the concept of tradition. Obviously, yes. the term traditionalism is used. And I wanted to read this first section here uh, from the manifesto, which says this, quote, we stand for the living frame flame of a very different traditionalism a beautiful living thing ever ancient and ever new in the words of the holy father pope francis here we see the authentic tradition of the church which is not a static deposit or a museum piece but the root of a constantly growing tree and then you uh, go on to quote gaudium et spes um, in every age this living flame of tradition has burned ever brighter by 
quoting Godimus Bess, scrutinizing the signs of the times and interpreting them in the light of the gospel, end quote. Um, and then finally you say, uh, we affirm not only the validity of the Second Vatican Council, but the primacy of these dogmatic and pastoral constitutions in our present era to instruct the people of God to be an instrument for the redemption of all Lumen Gentium 9. So can you elaborate on what is, I mean, this is a big question, but what is tradition and what you're trying to articulate here and what is traditionalism in these ways as opposed to what it's not? All right, first off, thanks for having me on. It's great, and I agree with the uh, sort of agenda of your of your approach here of trying to bring uh, various camps together for the common cause of the Church, because we all love the Church, and we want what's best for it, so thank you. Uh, tr- tr- broadly speaking, I mean, every Catholic should be a traditionalist, right? Because tradition is what, in, a, in some sense, demarcates a Catholic from m- many branches of Protestantism. Uh, tradition, um, sort of from a, from a theologian's perspective, is not a standalone separate source of revelation, uh, separate and autonomous from Scripture, but uh, tradition lives in a kind of dialectical or even a symbiotic relationship uh, with, with Scripture, uh, and is in some ways the unfolding of the truths contained in Scripture, uh, which is the privileged witness to Revelation, which per se is Christ himself. So we, we would hold for the idea that Revelation as such is Christ. The Scriptures are the privileged, God-inspired witness, and therefore participant in that revelation, and tradition is the home in which that unfolds over time, guided by the Holy Spirit, and the Church has developed over time certain dogmatic and theological notes, markers for what constitutes a high-level teaching of the tradition or element of the tradition, and and lower-level things which can perhaps be reformable. And it's important to note here, as my friend Dr. Peter K. How do you pronounce his name? Kwasniewski? Kwasniewski. I should know this. I'm half Polish. Kwasniewski. Kwasniewski. My friend, Dr. Let's just call him Dr. Peter K. And... uh, he, he likes to point out quite often, and he's very, very much right on this, that uh, tradition is more than simply councils and popes. It's not simply the teaching magisterium. Tradition also includes uh, liturgy in particular, and the manner in which the liturgy embodies most particularly in in the sacramental form, the tradition as such as well. Uh, and, and so in, in some ways, I know this is a vague answer, but tradition can be a rather diffuse thing, and I think that's a good thing. You don't want tradition simply associated with a bunch of papal statements or conciliar statements, because then you can run the risk of truncating the tradition as well as finally ending up with a kind of hyper-papalism, which treats the papacy as a kind of oracular, you know, oracle of Delphi sort of thing, uh, which which boxes you into certain corners, because sometimes popes have said some howlers uh, that you, you don't really want to follow. Um, but anyway, that's sort of tradition, broadly speaking. Now, traditionalism, as it has come to sort of be associated with certain factions in, in the Church today, um, has, has of late... Uh, sort of coalesced around the traditional Latin Mass, and increasingly these days coalesced around opposition to Pope Francis 
and then opposition even to John Paul and Benedict, and opposition to at least some of the teachings of the Second Vatican Council. And of course, then there is a, a hierarchy of severe to less severe to very mild uh, forms of, of radical traditionalism. And so we decided to articulate what we call a new traditionalism, which kind of seems maybe a bit, you know, oxymoronic, let's put it that way, you know, a new traditionalism. How can you have a new tradition? Well, in the sense that I think the sort of traditionalism as we see today in the church is also new. Um, you know, it, it, it didn't really exist until very, very recently, maybe 50 years or so. Um, and so we felt the need, since there were so many angry voices out there, in denouncing Vatican II, denouncing the Novus Ordo, denouncing Pope Francis and Pope Benedict and John Paul and Paul VI, we just felt, well, wait a minute here. We don't know if that represents a wide swath of traditionalists or not, but it certainly represents the loudest of them on social media. So we uh, we, we directed the manifesto not so much at all traditionalists, since we have no idea what all traditionalists think. Uh, we directed, in a sense, at the loud voices on social media and offered our voice on social media as a kind of kind of antidote to that. Okay. Uh, fantastic. So, and we'll get into that a lot more. Could you, I think b the biggest point here with what you just said um, is the development of doctrine in terms of right. tradition. Could you elaborate on how you understand true development of doctrine? Oh boy, that's a very complex, uh, very complex question. Much debated these days. If uh, just preface this too by saying, I think that one of the flaws of the Second Vatican Council, even though I'm a big supporter of the Council, I'm not blind to its flaws. And one of its central flaws was that it did not articulate a coherent vision of what it meant by development of doctrine. And uh, even Pope Benedict has, has noted that lacuna in, in the in Council. And that could have saved us a lot of headaches if the Council itself had bothered to say, okay, we're changing XYZ, and we're calling that a development of doctrine, without ever defining what they meant by development. Pope Benedict, in a very famous speech, has outlined what he calls, instead of a hermeneutic of rupture or a hermeneutic of continuity, what he calls a hermeneutic of reform. And this gets to the issue of development of doctrine. And what a hermeneutic of reform is going to say is that in the midst of a very broad continuity, where doctrine develops organically, like an acorn develops into an oak tree, and, you know, it develops organically out of its own steam, out of its own resources, so that you can see in hindsight, oh yeah, this idea, say like this Marian idea, really is contained in the scriptures in some way, and we can see now how this is unfolded. Uh, but there's all, and so that's the continuity. But there's also, in a sense, a time when the church sometimes does have to reverse itself. Some of its teachings are not irreformable and need to be reformed, even to the point of maybe even being reversed. Uh, so Pope Benedict speaks of what he calls discontinuities as well. So reform is always going to involve a broad continuity, but in the service of that broad continuity, which after all is faithfulness to tradition, you might need to engage in certain certain small little ruptures with a small R, certain discontinuities, and sort of in order to redress the imbalance that that has sort of that has sort of come in. And, and Vatican II certainly 
had its share of, of reversals, and we can talk about those. I would recommend Tom, Father Thomas Guarino's book, uh, The Disputed Teachings of, of Vatican II, as an excellent resource for determining what the Council reversed, what it did not reverse, and why, and then articulates an idea of development that includes both organic development, but also the idea that organic development needs to incorporate certain ruptures sometimes, discontinuities. Yeah, fantastic. And and this is, um, yeah, if viewers are not uh, familiar with it, so the 2000, uh, 2007, I think, was the hermeneutic of performed speech where he talks yeah. about a deepening of the reality. Now, lest anyone yeah. um, think that that's some kind of modernism, we can go back to Divino Aflante Spiritu in 1943, Pius XII, who reverses, in a sense, uh, what Trent said about the Vulgate. And and I'm yeah. wondering if uh, you would say, Dr. Chap, because what, what what's impressed me about Divino Flante Spiritu is that Pius XII makes a reversal about the Vulgate, but then he clarifies and says, Trent is not in error. It's just, it needs to be understood in only this sense. And so he makes a distinction and then he makes his reversal. And so there's no contradiction because in the text of Divino Flante Spiritu, he makes these distinctions. Now, are you saying that uh, Vatican II could have been uh, better, perhaps, if uh, there was that type of thing? So, like, we're going to have a Dignitatis Humanae, and we'll talk about this, but we're going to have oh, a yeah. reversal, but we're going to then lay out in a few paragraphs how we should understand the prior teachings, as Pius XII did, and then move on to how we're going to understand the development. Is that what you're kind of saying would would have been better, perhaps? Oh, yeah. I think it would have been much better because there's still confusion about, you know, what really was Dignitatis Humanae saying? I think it was actually rather clear in what it was saying, but um, a lot of people disagree with me. And, th and so the, the, the debate is on. And it would have been better had Dignitatis, I think, been a few pages longer and spelled out. And uh, we know we've changed certain things. See, here's the deal. Thomas Guarino, Father Guarino in his book, points out that Vatican II engaged in what he called masking. And, and what he meant by that was that it tried to simply gloss over the fact that it was reversing things. Uh, Vatican II wanted to stay within this, this total paradigm of continuity. No ruptures, no discontinuities. It wanted to put forward the idea that it really wasn't in discon discontinuity with anything. And, and yet it was. And so there, there was a certain two-step going. I don't want to say they were lying. They weren't. They were simply trying to mute what it was they were doing in order to avoid controversy, in order to avoid upsetting people, in order to avoid people thinking that they were saying that the church had erred in the past. Uh, and it would have been better had they simply said, we do think that some of the things the church taught before were so off kilter in some ways that they were mildly in error on some reformable points. It would have been more honest, I think. Great. Well, I, I think that that's really helpful for the discussion and the debate. Um, some people take the view that Dignitas Humanae was entirely in continuity. There was no reversal whatsoever. It's just another aspect. But it sounds like you're taking the view that, yes, there was some reversal, but it was on a lower level of reformable teaching. Is that this is important? Yeah, this is a very important point because. If we want to say that the church can never be in some sort of small e error, you know, obviously dogmas can't change and be, be an error. Major high-end, high-note doctrines can only be slightly tweaked and they're not an error. 
But we don't want to extend infallibility all the way down. It's not infallibility turtles all the way down. Otherwise, you end up saying that everything the church has ever taught authoritatively at any point, anywhere, is infallible. And that's, that's actually not, not Catholic teaching. And so, so obviously some teachings are reformable. Some teachings are reversible. Uh, and Dignitatis Humanae clearly, in my opinion, reverses especially some statements from 19th century and early 20th century popes. I mean, Gregory and Mar- Pope Gregory and Merari Vos says that the idea of extending full religious conscience freedom rights to, to people in civil society, he calls that idea absurd and erroneous. Dignitatis comes along and says, Every single human being, in virtue of their human dignity as creatures made in the image and likeness of God, has an inherent, inviolable freedom of conscience, especially in religious matters, in civil in the civil sphere. Now, that is clearly a reversal of Mirari Vos. And I, I don't know how you parse it in any other way. And by the way, that teaching of Dignitatis Humani is also not irreformable. It's not an infallible teaching. And therefore, the debate over it, I, I don't get upset with traditionalists who say, I disagree with that. I, I disagree with them for disagreeing with it, but they have every right to disagree with it because it's... And, and so there are some people on my side of the aisle who like to finger wag a lot and say, how dare you challenge Vatican II? Well, Vatican II challenged what many things that came before. So why can't we, in some ways, question, question the council? Excellent. Well, I, I really love what you say here on, um, I guess this is what section is. Section three, you say this in the manifesto, quote, Tragically, many Catholics have sought to defend the rights of the church or the rights of the poor by accepting the errors of various modern idolatries, despite the fact that, quoting Gaudi Metzbez, the church, by reason of sole competence, is not bound by any political system. She is at once a sign and safeguard of the transcendent character of the human person. And continuing the manifesto, therefore, we reject the limitations of the right and the left political paradigm of modernity and embrace the tradition of Catholic social teaching as our foundation. I thought that was it, it needs to. That was a fantastic statement. I think uh, it really and it really needs. Thank to be you. Because I, I think that there's been a, a great deal of co-opting of the church. Like in the United States, we live in, the, in America. Uh, the Democratic Party has co-opted some side of Catholicism. The Republican Party has co-opted another part of Catholicism. And so Catholics are extremely, I think, brainwashed and controlled by by these different um, political parties. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's entirely correct. I mean, I just wrote a blog post on, on my blog, Gaudium at Spes 22, uh, about what, what I call, Dorothy, what Dorothy Day called her anarchism. Well, we can get into that a little bit, but she didn't mean some sort of antinomian libertarianism. She simply meant, in some ways, a pox on all your houses. Uh, what, what she stood against, what we stand against, is the reduction of the gospel to a particular political platform and a particular political message. Now, everybody's going to deny, every Catholic's going to deny who's working in the political sphere that that's what they're doing. No way I'm reducing the gospel to this. But when then you, then you start looking at their stridency and, and their political message, and you begin to see the issues that they love to focus on and the issues that they love to ignore, then you do begin to see a de facto reduction of the gospel to a particular political platform of both the right and the left. And, uh, and, and they're both guilty of it in, in maybe asymmetric ways over time. Sometimes the left is 
closer to the gospel on the right and vice versa. But I think in the end, it sort of washes out into a real a, a real mess, to be honest with you. And uh, I think in particular in the United States, um, the neocons, uh, you know, represented by First Things, Father Newhouse, George Weigel, all of which I like. I mean, I read First Things. I love George Weigel and Father Newhouse. They did good things. But there was definitely a tendency there to, to equate the gospel with a kind of American ideology, which... which you know, was great at challenging the culture of death and the great at challenging abortion, euthanasia, the, those sorts of things, but not so great in confronting the American military-industrial complex and confronting the idea that maybe a Catholic can't sit in a nuclear missile silo with a key ready to incinerate 10 million people. Uh, this, this just goes unaddressed, and it's a huge, huge problem. No, a very, very, very conservative moral theologian, Dr. Germain Griset, who I studied under, at Mount St. Mary's in Emmitsburg, uh, and he's very orthodox. I mean, he's, uh, he's passed away now, sadly. Uh, he held that the American nuclear deterrent was immoral, gravely immoral, uh, on, on the grounds that it, it's, it's a violation of human life um, because it intends to kill human life indiscriminately. Uh, so anyway, we could debate that, and I don't want to get off on that tangent, but that's simply one small point that I'm talking about here, where the right, like the Catholic right, likes to champion itself as we're so orthodox and we're so with Catholic teaching, yet they do ignore certain elements of it. Now, I want to respond to, well, as long as we're on this point, to something that Charles Colomb said in his uh, critique of sure. the new traditionalism on, on 1 Peter 5. By the way, first off, I loved it. I loved his critique. It was very mild and very fair and said some really great stuff. He's a smart guy and I love him. Um, but he, but he said, and he asked the question, why are we as the authors of the new man of the manifesto new traditionalism? Why are we always sort of doing this sort of symmetrical a pox on both the right and the left, uh, politically speaking? Uh, and, and, uh, and, and why are we not paying more attention to the progressives? Why are we not being more condemnatory towards the progressives? And, and my answer to that is that, um, progressives are, even though, and Charles says, you know, especially since the progressives are in charge of the church right now and have been for a long time. So why aren't you really pointing your barbs at them instead of constantly taking pot shots at the traditionalists? And my, my answer is that even though the progressives are sort of in charge of them, by the way, I blogged against them left and right, even though it's not in, in the manifesto. So I agree with him. You know, we need to go after the progressives. But in the manifesto, what we're really, in a sense, saying is this is an open letter to our friends. We're not writing to the progressives because we've just dismissed them. We don't agree with them at all. We don't agree with their their low church ecclesiology. We don't agree with their ersatz, you know, um, cafeteria line Catholicism. We don't agree with any of that. And we, we consider it a dead end. And we don't really, I don't have any interest in dialoguing with them or conversing with them or correcting them because their errors are so manifest. Why even bother? Um, but the trads, right, in some ways, they're our allies. In other words, the future of Catholicism resides in some version of traditionalism. And therefore, that's, that's where, the, in a sense, the debates have to happen. Progressivism, in my opinion, will eventually burn itself out as a non-starter. Anyway, so that's a digression from your original question about politics. Well, that, that's good. I mean, that, that's kind of the spirit that uh, I published Colomb's article at 1 Peter 5, that, that 
I, that's what I want. And that's why you're here. You know, this is, yeah. why, uh, this, that's great that you, that was, um, in that spirit. Um, because yeah. Cologne was, was observing what he, what he was thinking was kind of like a symmetric symmetry between left and right. Uh, but I think that in the phrase you were just mentioning left and right, not saying that, uh, yeah. the right, yeah. the right traditionalist. But in, in all of it, we're, we're really just trying to, as well, to, to, not to say we're above the fray or, you know, that we have a bird's eye Archimedean view of the whole that the left and the right don't have, because we don't, nobody does. But to simply say there are problems, deep, deep-seated problems on, on both sides that have to be looked at from a Catholic perspective. You know, sure. it's a manifesto. It can't, it can't do everything. Otherwise, it had been 80 pages long instead of, you know, 15 or true. whatever it was. Yes, yes, that's true. Um, so let me i want to get we'll, we'll get back to the vatican II controversy in just a minute but i wanted to ask you about kathy worker because this is an this yeah. is an example i think of the left and right brainwash whatever because as soon as a catholic like a, a right so-called right-wing catholic starts to talk about we need to help the poor we need to you know do something for the poor this and that sometimes you get branded as a socialist or whatever just because you're concerned about the poor when in fact that's one of the most Catholic Christian things to do, as St. Paul says when he writes to the Galatians. So can you explain, can you explode any of the myths or calumnies against the Catholic worker, kind of break that down for any, just think of all the critics out there who think Catholic worker and immediately think, uh, you know, communist, fruity, tooty, whatever. Tell us what is Catholic worker. Tell us about that. Well, for those who don't know, the Catholic Worker Movement started in the uh, early 1930s with Dorothy Day teaming up with, with Peter Morin, a sort of uh, French, patri French peasant, intellectual, self-taught <laughs> theological dilettante who was kind of a theological genius in his own right. But if you look at, at and, 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 and you know, the height of the Depression, and they wanted to serve the poor, so they started these houses of hospitality and soup kitchens, and then Peter had this agrarian vision of starting Catholic worker farms, like the one that I, that I run. And uh, they were very, very devout Catholics, very orthodox Catholics, uh, who simply wanted to take the Sermon on the Mount and Catholic social teaching very seriously. I mean, some would say too serious, too literally. Uh, today we might call it a consistent ethic of life uh, sort of thing, but Dorothy and Peter opposed abortion. Dorothy even opposed contraception. Uh, she believed in all of the church's sexual teachings. Uh, yeah, she, she was opposed to capitalism. She was also a pacifist, which one does not have to be. I, for example, I disagree with her doctrinaire pacifism. I think sometimes charity demands coming to the defense of the weak. Although overall, the worker movement, I think, rightly positions itself as a preferential option for peace and to fight against the very militarism that leads that leads to war in the first place. Um, but uh, I don't, you know, so it's, I'm an example of someone who isn't, you know, necessarily completely on board with everything Dorothy said about pacifism. All the while, I freely acknowledge that her fundamental principles of, of nonviolence, of service to the poor, of criticizing the uh, certain aspects of capitalism, I, th I think it's all spot on. And unfortunately, she, she did she did have a lot of alliances with, with the sort of left, uh, political alliances, uh, simply because she saw in them, a, in, in, in often times with Marxists. 
Um, so no, she was not a communist, and she herself was not a Marxist. She rejected Marxist atheistic materialism, and she also rejected their promotion of class, the motif of class warfare. Um, but what she liked about them was their message of economic egalitarianism, their message of you know a more equitable distribution of the goods of this earth uh, to the poor. And so she made common cause with them to the extent that she could. And I think that led some people to think, oh, she still has these Marxist sort of leanings or whatever. Actually, no, she was simply a, a bit of an opportunist here and saying, okay, if we're going to effect change, maybe we need to at least make some. And she wasn't opposed to making common cause with certain parts of the political right either when she, when she thought that, that, that they were correct. Um, and so, yeah, they, they were both Orthodox Catholic. And I think people confuse the, the, the direction that some elements of the Catholic work today has taken with Dorothy and Peter themselves, because there's no doubt, you know, and I don't want to say all, I haven't been to all, but a lot of Catholic worker houses really are involved in what are pretty much sort of secular leftist political causes. You, you rarely see them fighting for, you know, anti-abortion, things like that. They'll be anti-war, anti-nuclear weapons, pro-poor people and stuff, but you never see them picketing Planned Parenthood or anything like that. So that's a legitimate criticism of certain—and I've made that criticism to Catholic workers myself. Fortunately, there's an up-and-coming younger generation of Catholic workers, and I know a lot of them, opening Catholic worker houses, one near me in Lancaster, PA, the Sean uh, Demensic. Uh, who was the main author of the manifesto. He runs a Catholic worker house, and it's very orthodox. Uh, and then I know a guy, Colin Miller, who want, runs one in Minneapolis. It's very, very, very orthodox. Um, and so th there are little, and we're orthodox, at least I, I hope so, <laughs> and some might disagree. But uh, so there, you know, that's the movement. And I do want to, I do want to correct one thing that Charles Cologne said in his piece, though, because he's repeated a, a, a bit of misinformation, and not to blame him, because I used to repeat this too until I was corrected by people who knew Dorothy, who was who were there. Um, he he mentions that Father Dan Berrigan once wanted to say mass at the Catholic Worker House in New York, and and to have the. Uh, consecration take place of, of the wine, the, the sacramental wine, in, in a styrofoam cup, and that Dorothy objected to this. Well, the incident in question was not a styrofoam cup. It was a coffee coffee mug. And the apocryphal story was actually repeated then by uh, Cardinal O'Connor, I, I, I believe, which is what gave it legs, was that she went, then went and took the coffee cup and buried it in the backyard. And If you've ever been to the Catholic Worker House in New York, you know there's no possibility of burying anything in their tiny little backyard. <laughs> you know, all you'd run into is Phil and uh, horribleness. Uh, based on what I know from people who, were, you know, who knew Dorothy, that that event never happened. Um, and that even though she was, um, she was not low church liturgically, and she did like bells and smells, uh, it, it's simply not true to say that she preferred the old mass to the new, and it's not true to say that she uh, stood up and raised her fist at liturgical abuses at the Catholic worker house, which did take place. Uh, she didn't. Um, and I don't think it's because she approved of those abuses. I think it's just because she didn't want to interject herself um, because, in, in, you know, in, in the, the, and it's, it's both one of the strengths and one of the weaknesses of the Catholic worker movement, that it has a very, she had an aversion to any kind of top-down authority 
within the movement. She wanted things to bubble up from below. She wanted people to see the truth of things on their own from below. So she was very averse to interjecting and intervening. So um, I know Charles is trying rightfully to show that Dorothy was very orthodox in her Catholicism, but it it, it doesn't serve her cause to engage in a kind of apocryphal ha- hagiography that sort of passes along these apparently false stories. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Yeah, I've heard that story elsewhere as well. Um, oh, I repeated it endlessly right. until I was corrected. So <laughs> let, let's get back into the Vatican II. Um, can you define what is rupturist traditionalism? Oh, that's that's a tough one because it's a bit vague, and and in in some ways it's it's a reaction against, as I said, some of the sort of the loudest voices that we see on the internet. Uh, you know, the, the the Taylor Marshall types, for example. Uh, a, a rupturist would be those who would say uh, that the Second Vatican Council and post-conciliar popes like Paul VI, JP II, and Benedict, and certainly Francis, <laughs> who's almost in a category all by himself, uh, that they have uh, departed from the broad tradition of the Church and have engaged in teaching uh, at least ambiguities, but in many cases, errors. The Vatican II taught error. Paul VI in the liturgical reforms in particular, did something that was deeply erroneous. Now, there might be some truth in that. Uh, but uh, And then John Paul taught things that were in error, and Benedict taught things that were in error, uh, because the, they are trying to unfold a council that was inherently erroneous in all kinds of ways. And so that's what I mean by, by rupture. Rather than seeking out... Uh, the broader continuity in the midst of the discontinuities. Uh, many traditionalists, and I'll get to why I think they do this, uh, simply say, oh, to, to heck with it. We're tired of dealing with this. We're tired of trying to put lipstick on a pig. The fact of the matter is, the post-conciliar era has been a disaster. Therefore, we blame the council. Therefore, the answer is to get behind and, and before the council. Therefore, we reject the council and everything that came after it. Not that it's all heresy, 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 but that you know it a tree by its fruit, and the fruit was bad, so the tree was bad, so let's just ignore the whole thing. And we don't think that that's uh, a viable solution, and we think that it is a form, a serious form of rupture with the idea of a living tradition. After all, these, these are magisterial moments, uh, and even though some of them might be in error, they can't just be dismissed. You can't just say, well, it's all wrong, so I'm not going to pay attention to it. You know, a Catholic can't do that. You're not allowed to do that as a Catholic. You have to pay attention to these things, which is why the more, the, the more sort of, I think, sometimes, logic, sometimes logically consistent traditionalists are the Sede Vacantists, who at least say, well, false counsel, false popes. Uh, and so let's let's just let's just get that on the table. Uh, I I think they're completely bonkers and they're wrong. And I know you agree. Maybe not with the bonkers part, but they're wrong. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, so, so you get my point. That's yeah, a rupturist. But uh, before you uh, go on, and I think what's caused this is is I blame Pope Francis. I think they've been red pilled by Pope Francis. I mentioned Taylor Marshall, and he's a case in point. 
if you look at the early stages of Taylor Marshall's career, he was a Vatican II guy. You know, he he was a mainstream. He was just interested in Thomas and the tradition, and he and he spun this narrative of continuity, and he loved John Paul and Benedict, and that was Taylor Marshall. But then, as the Francis papacy unfolded, you saw Taylor. Uh, Dr. Marshall, I should call him. I should give him respect, uh, even though I disagree with him. Um, you see Dr. Marshall moving further and further and further into the sort of Archbishop Vigano sort of narrative and wing of the church. And I think it's because the more and more Pope Francis sort of with his off-the-cuff statements and empowering people like James Martin, you know, and the Pachamama and all that, uh, I think they were gradually red-pilled by Pope Francis, which I think is part of the problem here. Pope Francis has really stirred the pot. Now, I, I'm not a hater of Pope Francis. I'm not a huge supporter of his either. I, I'm lukewarm towards Pope Francis. He's a pope. We'll get another one someday. That's that. That's what you get with popes. Um, so I, I don't get all upset over it. But nevertheless, some do. Some find, well, Pope Francis is teaching error. And that unsettles them because they don't know how to negotiate the idea that a pope might teach error. Um, and so I, I think that's a dynamic that's going on here very much. And I, and I sympathize with their attitude. It's, it's a troubling moment. It's a troubling time. Yeah, absolutely. No, nobody can disagree with that, certainly. Uh, now, you said earlier that Vatican II does contain reversals. Um, there was some lower level discontinuity um i'm not sure if right. you would, i'm not sure if you would label that ambiguity or not but where exactly so there's kind of a spectrum between kind of what you're saying i mean i think some other others of the quote like quote unquote communio school might even go uh further and say there's there's no ambiguity it's all con continuous and then there's the spectrum as you said all the way to set of a contism so at what point in this spectrum, do you cross the line and become a rupturist traditionalist? Oh, I, I think you, you become a rupturist when you start saying things like uh, Vatican II teaches heresy. Vatican II just needs to therefore be set aside and completely ignored. Uh, it's, a, it's a valid ecumenical council of the church in many ways, it was the most participatory council in the history of the church, the most global council in the history of the church. So if ever a, a council was truly ecumenical in the full meaning of that word, other than the fact that our, our schismatic brothers to the east, if you want to call them that, or they would call us schismatic, uh, were not represented at the council other than as observers, uh, it was one of the most ecumenical councils in, in the history of the church. Um, it was unique. It had a unique approach and all that, but it's a valid ecumenical council. And, you know, the church has always taught that a Catholic has to give religious submission of mind and will to the authoritative teachings of the magisterium, even ones that you disagree with. Now, that doesn't mean you can't publicly disagree with them. And, we, and one of the faults of the church before the council that the council remedied was the idea that you could not air grievances against the church. You know, one of the things I would like to say to Dr. Peter Kay, a couple of things. First off, he would not get away with what he does if he had lived in 1940 instead of 2020, because the 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 the, the index and the, and the and the holy inquisition would have come down on his head. You know, who are you, you impertinent layman, to be calling the pope a heretic? 
uh, and he would not have gotten away with what he so the, the, one of the ways in which the council redressed so we, but we have to in a sense oh by the way there were very few lay theologians in, in the preconciliar church yeah, now good so point. I, I I would not have existed hey, dr. Would Peter exist. Kay would not have existed <laughs> as a theologian I would right. have existed and so would Peter but we would not have existed as I mean you you, have, you saw a lot of lay Catholic philosophers but very few theologians very 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 few okay and that that's a positive contribution of the second vatican council the declericalizing of the theological guild but we do owe that council religious submission and mind and will even as we debate its content so one becomes a rupturist when one simply says i'm not going to listen to it in many many ways it's it's a okay it's a failed council okay we can debate that failed not failed in a lot of ways it was a failure but to call it, in a sense, a heretical council, then you or, or, or a council that was deeply steeped in error, um, I have no problem with the traditionalists who would say Vatican II was ambiguous. It was in some way, so we can debate okay. that. Okay. But to say that it was in error, that it taught heresy, I think that's when you cross the line into rupturist. Now, to what okay. extent does that represent traditionalists? You know, one of the things Charles says in his thing is that the vast, vast majority of traditionalists don't hold to the things that you find on Twitter and Facebook and social media. And I would criticize that somewhat because I don't think Charles has done a study, a hard sociological study of the viewpoints of traditionalists in in, in Europe and, the, and North America. I don't think he has because I don't think anybody has. And so I always like to say I'm just reacting to those loud voices on Twitter, Facebook and other social media and certain things that I read in books and pamphlets and that kind of thing because I haven't I haven't done a study. I hear people friends of mine who are who go to TLM you know and, and they love it and they say yeah you're wrong to, and, but then I have a lot of friends who have exited the TLM movement and say oh man I couldn't take the anti-semitism and the misogyny and the hatred towards the church and all that. so one one it's hard to paint a picture it's hard to paint a picture and so when when Charles says this is not representative of the traditionalist movement I have no way. All I know is, is anytime I post something on Dr. Peter Kay's Facebook page that is even remotely supportive of Vatican II, out of the woodwork flies these flying monkeys to come on and, uh, you know, to dismember, <laughs> to dismember me and, and toss my, my straw around. Like, yeah, you know, I mean, seriously, they just come out of it like, like a horde of locusts. All of a sudden, there's like 18,000, you know, Facebook posts, you know, condemning me. And after a while, when you do this for years and years and you and, and then you look at my email inbox anytime I publish a blog post, even mildly critical of certain elements of traditionalism, the Gatling guns come out. So, you know, I, I think there are more rupturists in the traditionalist movement than Charles is willing to, to admit. None of us, none, you know, like you mentioned the Comunio School. I have certain reservations about their ongoing irenicism and their endless hermeneutic of total con material continuity. Um, you know, that's not all communio theologians, obviously. I'm a communio theologian. I publish in communio. I know the editors. I love them to pieces. This is not really a criticism of them as such. But in the broader communio movement, you know, nobody likes to admit that on their side of the aisle, there, there are errors. Um, and the traditionalists are, are the same. Um, so I don't like to right. admit yeah, that. Fair enough. Fair enough. You know, <clears throat> um, I want, let me present this to you. Cause I just wrote this down trying to break down what you're saying here. 
Uh, yeah. Because what I hear you saying is the number one thing is piety. We need to have piety, which is religious submission of mind and will, mind and will, uh, which in Italian submission means obsequium uh, religiosum means just sort of reverence and awe. Um, right. And so th- um, that's I think that's a really good point because I do think that some trads are just impious w- in re- with regards to the current magisterium. I- I've described it at one Peter five as a as a de facto sedi privationism which is where you, <laughs> yeah. you believe that the magisterium no longer it, it exists but it has no authority and so you just you're just basically a set of a contest but you acknowledge that there's a real pope it's kind of a weird position so i i wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying with piety um but up on the screen here i just put right uh four levels here um and I, I want to just get into a few theological distinctions in order to flesh this out, if, if anyone was not familiar with the distinction between error and heresy. But I just put down um, Vatican Council 1 teaches ambiguity. I think that's I think an ecumenical council can certainly teach ambiguity. It, I mean, just reference Council of Nicaea regarding the divinity of the Holy Spirit or any other council for that matter. Um, so I, I think number one is totally possible in a ecumenical sure. council. Sure, absolutely. Okay. I think number two is teaching error by omission. And what I mean by that is, so for example, um, there could be a teaching that is prominent and then an ecumenical council just doesn't do anything about it. Or they may have a phrase that uh, may sort of be approaching something, but then just chooses not to address it. And so it could it can be kind of construed as an error by omission. Like they should have made it clear or there's, in other words, this particular phrase in an ecumenical council could be said to lead towards error because it failed to condemn. So, for example, Vatican II's failure to condemn communism, as an example, even though it was pushed at the council to condemn communism. Uh, I would say number two is completely possible as well in in terms of what a valid ecumenical council could do. Most certainly is. I agree. So then number three is now we get in the distinction between error and heresy. Now, um, heresy is the obstinate uh, refusal or obstinate denial of a uh, Catholic truth, a dogma, really, something that's been definitively taught, whether ordinarily or, or uh, extraordinarily, um, that must be believed for salvation. And that's a denial of the highest thing. So, for example, denying the Immaculate Conception would be a heresy. Um, right. Now, an error is something that's just of a lesser uh, certainty. It's a lesser theological note. Um, so you'd be denying a sententia certa or a, sen- or a proxima fidei. Uh, so it's essentially just something that is of, of less weight, but it's still right. a mortal sin. You can still, if you're an error uh, willfully, you could still be in mortal sin if you're an erring theologian obstinately. So it's, it's kind of a right. minute distinction there. But um, I would say that it seems to me that number three is... The, the general opinion is that a Vatican, a valid ecumenical council cannot teach error. But I would, however, say that the the controversy over hex sancta in in uh, in Constance, the ecumenical council of Constance, has never really truly been definitively resolved. And, and if people are not aware of this. Hex sancta was basically a positive error that was reversed later. Um, so it's never quite been resolved. I think that there's different opinions about how that is resolved. So therefore, I would say number three is somewhat disputed, but I would say the the more probable opinion, more common opinion following Bellarmine is that it's not possible. Would you agree with what I'm saying on number three as well? 
Uh, not entirely. I, I think it is possible uh, for an ecumenical council in a document that defines itself explicitly as a non-infallible document, as a pastoral document, uh, that is making uh, prudential judgments in some cases uh, and, and applying doctrine in prudential pastoral cases. I think it's possible for an ecumenical council to teach something that is in error uh, in, in that regard, in that very, very limited sense. It cannot teach, I don't think an ecumenical council can teach something which is doctrinally in error. So I would, I would agree with that. So maybe if that's what you mean by teaches positive error, then I would say, yeah, I don't, I don't think an ecumenical council can teach a positive error either. Okay. Well, that, that's, that's important because now you're introducing the distinction between uh, faith and morals, doctrine versus prudential exhortations yeah. of the magisterium regarding politics, economics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's an important distinction. Um, obviously, the Pope can certainly, or any bishop or any priest can be certainly be in error when they're trying to make a judgment about what is properly the lay order's role, which is ruling and governing for the common good. Um, but the priests and the magisterium obviously have the right to express their opinions, and we should submit them yeah. with piety and listen to them, of course. But some of this is, is you get dicey, because, for example, let's go back to the Council of Constance, which condemned John Huss. And then turn John Huss over to the civil authorities for due punishment for his obstinate heresy, which in his case included being burnt at the stake. And, and Constance knew darn well that more than likely John Huss was going to be burned at the stake. So, uh, and, and, and in a sense said, well, we're turning John Huss now over to the civil authorities. See this right in, in what they were teaching. It not only condemned, in other words, his theological errors— so they were perfectly orthodox in that regard. But then they went on to say, and he deserves punishment for this. Now, that would then fall into the category of what I consider an error in prudential judgment, not an error in doctrine. Okay, heresy does deserve punishment in some cases, okay. ecclesiastical punishment. Should that include death, <laughs> imprisonment, being turned over to the civil authorities for flogging or whatever? I think not. Uh, and, and, and so I thought, I think Constance was in error. I think any, any statement from the church that gave aid and comfort to the idea that the civil authorities can burn heretics at the stake in our name is an error. But it's an error more, I think, on the level of prudential judgment than I think necessarily on the level of doctrine, because no doctrinal statement is being made. Well, I, I, based on what you just said, I do need to bring up Exurge Domine here. Um, because yeah, oh yeah, uh, because Martin Luther stated, obviously, that he, he, one of his errors that he was he was condemned for was quote that heretics be burned is against the will of the spirit end quote. And um, Serge yeah. condemns that. Yes, so that's a condemned proposition. But clarify for us: Are you you're, are you asserting this? You're not asserting what Martin Luther said. What are you asserting exactly? Oh, I am asserting what Martin Luther said. <laughs> I think Martin Luther was correct that it is not of the Holy Spirit to burn heretics uh, at, at the stake. I don't think that is in the spirit of the gospel. I don't think it's. I hate to appeal to what would Jesus do. I don't. I don't see Christ. Uh, you know, never once tells his apostles and you know, turn your hair. Don't just kick your heretics out of the church. Send them over to Caesar for burning. Uh, I, I I just, and then, of course, Pope Leo in Exerge Domine says, you know, 
Luther is wrong to say that it's against the Holy Spirit to burn heretics at the stake. Now, the question is that I would have, I mean, clearly I think Pope Leo is in error here. I think he's teaching a positive error. The question, though, is why? What is he really saying here? Is he making a doctrinal assertion, all right, that it is always and everywhere allowable to burn heretics at the stake if the church decides that this is in the spirit of the whole, you know, the, the Holy Spirit is, is active here. It would seem at face value that that is what he's saying, that he is making a doctrinal statement. Um, but I think we have to be very, very careful about this and, and, and put it in the context of the times and, and, and realize that in, maybe in some ways what Pope Leo was really saying was, don't be so quick to dismiss don't be so quick to dismiss the authority of the church over even civil matters. Don't be so quick to dismiss the role of the church in, in, in a sense, policing, policing the faith and the culture uh, of Christendom. Um, I, I think that's the spirit in which, which Leo is engaged here. Um, I, I really, I just, I, I just don't think that he's making a bold, brash, doctrinal affirmation with the full authority. He claims the full authority of the papacy in the document. I mean, if you don't submit to this, you're excommunicated and so on. So I, I consider that, and I mentioned it in my blog, maybe you read my blog post on this, where I talked about Constance, and I, I was about to bring up Exergio Domini, uh, because they're very, those are very difficult cases about burning heretics at the stake, where the church seemed to teach that it was okay. Um, uh, but I, I still think you have to be very, very careful about simply saying this is a doctrinal error that the church is teaching. If it's a doctrine, it's a very low-level one. Let's just put it that, and okay. reformable. And reform. Yeah, I think I, I think you're making a fair point that Exurge Domine does not give the theological. I mean, this is the manner of papal condemnations. Just list a bunch of condemnations; they're condemned. <laughs> but yeah. not like Actorum Fidei doesn't distinguish which ones are offensive to pious ears, which ones are error. It just says they're all bad. Don't we don't like them? Well, see, uh, this is yeah. yeah this is my point. In, in the context of those times, this is simply a carte blanche, scorched earth. And this is Pope Leo's failure here. It's just a scorched earth saying. Won't somebody rid me of this troublesome monk? Please, just shut up and go away. You're wrong about everything. Uh, and and uh, that's why I, I, I hate to be sort of insouciant about such an important papal document. But it is always very, very, very important. You don't want to historicize things away, but historical context is so important in the history of the church. Yeah, I, and I would certainly concede that there was a naivete on, with Leo X as he failed to implement um, the reforms of uh, Lateran V anyways. And there was a naivete as to yeah. what was the real problem going on at the time. So I, I would definitely agree with that. However, I'm a, let, me, let me ask you to clarify further, because would you agree with St. Thomas's justification of the death penalty for heretics, namely that heretics kill the soul, which is infinitely worse than a murderer. Therefore, they must receive the death penalty for all sorts of reasons. What are your thoughts on St. Thomas's? I think St. Thomas is wrong about that uh, because heresy doesn't always kill the soul, for starters. And that might sound heretical and outrageous to some listening to this. But people fall into heretical opinions for all kinds of reasons. Uh, psychological, personal, cultural, you know, philosophical, ideological. I, I just, 
and and I, I think therefore if we if we rush to judgment now of course what Aquinas is talking about here are obstinate public heretics. He's not talking about Mrs. McGillicuddy down at the corner market spouting some area nonsense that she picked up from her husband or something. All right. He's not talking about that. He's, I'm glad you brought in Mrs. McGillicuddy because Yeah, yeah. He's not he's not talking he's he's, ta- he's talking about obstinate public sort of theological heretics who, you know, you know, Giordano Bruno, a John Huss, the obviously Aquinas is before them, but you know what I mean. Uh, and yet I still I, I still think he's wrong there. Because I think that it gives the church a black eye. It's, it's you know, well, first off, too, I oppose the death penalty. Uh, so I, I agree with the modern development of that doctrine in John Paul and Pope Francis. Uh, and so I have an inbuilt hostility towards anyone that would say, not only can we exercise the death penalty, but we ought to do it with regard to heretics. I just think it's counterproductive. We're still living that down. 800 years later. I mean, we're still in the public eye, the church that burned heretics at the stake. Now, Protestants did the same, but for whatever reason, we're the ones who get the bad rap for it. We're the ones who had the Inquisition. We're the ones who sanctioned Galileo. We're the ones who burned Giordano Bruno and John Huss and, 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 and a lot of others. Maybe not as much as the sort of black legends would, would have us believe and the anti-Catholic propaganda would have us believe, but nevertheless, we did it. And that is a that is a stigma that's, that, that sticks to us. Uh, and, and you'd think that it wouldn't, but it has all these years later. I mean, right down to, I mean, I'm old enough to remember Monty Python. And, you know, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition sketch, uh, you know. And part of that is sort of Anglican anti-Catholicism. Uh, but, but, but still, it's funny. It's funny as heck. Right. Uh, but, but you get my point. And I also think... I don't think threat of death is necessarily the best way to coerce conversion. Conversion, excuse me. Sure. Okay. Well, fair enough. There's more we could. That's a whole other thing we could we could break open. But I want to get back to this. Uh, okay. So I, I added a distinction here based on what you're saying. So you're saying that number three is correct. It can be happen ha- can happen from an ecumenical council teaching positive error on non faith and morals, which I totally agree. Um, right, but you're saying that number four is impossible, correct? Yeah, uh, if if it's if it's on faith and morals. yeah, if it's teaching an official sort of doctrinal element uh, right. on the faith, or if it's teaching something about uh, morality that it considers rooted in revelation, and, and I think right. this is the key here: when the church specifically roots a doctrinal or moral teaching in Revelation and gives theological justifications based on Revelation for that teaching, then I do not think that it is wise for us to say that the church can teach positive error in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps, perhaps somebody can find an instance where, where that's the case. Maybe people think I'm fudging when I say that, you know, saying that it's okay to burn heretics at the stake is not, you know, teaching something false about morals, you know, that, it, that it's okay to execute people. Uh, for heretical holdings, um, but uh, but I don't I don't think because I don't think the church ever really rooted that in revelation. Okay, so it sounds like you're you're introducing a further distinction into number four, which is sort of uh, <laughs> an off the cuff, yeah. if you will, if we can call it off the cuff, exurge yeah. domine, just a blanket condemnation versus something that's developed like a council of Trent is going into a bunch of depth in the holy scriptures, you know, discussing everything. Well, 
Yeah, and what's key here, too, is this. We don't want to fall into the error of a kind of discrete propositionalism. So we, we take little little nuggets, little factoids out, out of context and say, hey, look, a pope said this at one time, or a council said this at one time. And we rip that out of context and we say, see there, it's taught, it's taught positive error on, on a doctrinal level. What, what is key, I mean, the church can say sometimes whatever it wants to say with, with regard to, oh, we're teaching doctrine or whatever. But, it, but the true mark, the true mark of a teaching that is a high theological note, that it really is an authoritative doctrinal teaching, is whether or not the church is truly reiterating and maybe developing someone, something that has been believed by all everywhere for all time. That's, that's, that's the real key here. That's the element that the church always looks to. It goes all the way back to Vincent of Loren and his criteria for what constitutes a, a, a genuine um, you know, perfection of the faith rather than a permutatio fide, a, a permutation of the faith. Has it been something that has been believed by all, vir, you know, virtually all, everywhere f- from the beginning? And that is the true marker that it is something rooted in revelation. So, you know, when the church comes along and starts spouting something that has not been taught, so for example, teaching that it's okay to burn heretics at the stake is certainly not something that was held by all from the beginning everywhere. That was a contentious issue going all the way back to the days of Jerome, St. Jerome, St. Augustine. Augustine. Okay, I'm trying to... I'm trying to break down because what I'm trying to get in here, Dr. Chap, is where does the rupturist traditionalist appear in this gradation? Does he appear at as soon as he starts saying that that Vatican II does three or when Vatican II does four? I, I'm trying to di- make a distinction you're making here between four and five, like teaching morals. I mean, uh, teaching faith and morals in passing, we might might, might include Exerge Domine, arguably, in that. Since right, we're talking about the right. will of the Holy Spirit. It's obviously a doctrinal statement. Yeah. Um, but I would, you know, I certainly can see that Exerge Domine is not teaching it in terms of five in the sense that it is, it is referencing something which was common practice for centuries. Yeah. But as you said, there, yeah. there were certain disputes as to uh, certain aspects of that. Oh, there were voices in the patristic era that explicitly said, no, you cannot, you know, punish heretics using the civil arm of the state. That is not the gospel, and you find very strong voices about that in in the patristic era. Now, you found also voices of the opposite in the patristic era, but the point is it wasn't universally and uniformly held by all at all times. Uh, And and that's that's the key. In other words, I'm, I'm not saying that the church hasn't, you know, developed certain doctrines uh, that that would offend pious ears these days, like burning heretics at the stake. But the, the question is, what is the theological note of that doctrine? How high in the hierarchy of truth is it? How, authoritati- yeah. how authoritatively has it been taught as a doctrine universally for all times by almost everyone in the church? That's an extremely, and I hate to sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, I'm meandering all over the place, I'm, but, but it's, it's an extremely complex question that doesn't necessarily lend itself easily to, to a sort of formulaic response. It, each case is going to be unique and different, and has to be examined very carefully by theologians and scholars to make sure that we're not flying off the handle, you know, and, and, and making a mountain out of a molehill. Um, and, and so I, I like the qualification that you, you've added on here, 
uh, because I really think that it is possible for a council or a pope to teach positive error on, on sort of uh, elements of non, you know, that are not high-level doctrines and faith and morals. But um, I, I don't think that it's possible for them to do so with regard to the very basic doctrinal elements that have been taught from the ch- from, by the church from the beginning. How about uh, this? non-definitively versus definitively yeah there you go that, like that's that. you know okay. you're, you're 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 better at this than i am so you're I'm saying a... okay so you're saying one two three four you say vatican two does one vatican two does two three and four you're not a rupturist traditionalist but as soon as you go to five that's when you're a rupturist traditionalist would you yeah, there you go i think i, I okay. think we're finally making progress here in all of my meanderings all <laughs> over the place yeah okay well uh, yeah okay so well that that makes uh, sense because uh, i was going to ask you oh go ahead well, I'm, I'm just trying to avoid sort of blanket statements here, formulaic statements. This is when it is, this is when it's not, uh, because I do, th- and I don't want to over-complexify it, say it's all gray, it's all historical context, but these are not simplistic issues. These are very, very complex issues. So to go back to point number one, the chief ambiguity of Vatican II, the chief ambiguity was that it did not clarify what it meant by a development of doctrine. You know, here we are all these years later having this conversation and, you know, you know, I'm struggling to articulate what a genuine development of doctrine is, what high-level notes and lower notes and what constitutes rupture or not rupture. That's a very complex thing to, to ask a single theologian to do when the church herself, when the right. church herself has not clarified that for us, really. Right. Uh, and, and the council did not clarify. It could have saved us a world of hurt over the past 60 years. You know, if, if it had if it had done so, and even Pope Benedict said said that it should. But I would say you're absolutely right. You're 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 a sort of trad rupturist uh, when you when you start to assert number five. Okay. All right, that that the Vatican II taught positive error on faith or morals definitively, say, such as in maybe Dignitatis Humanae, or in Lumen Gentium when it says that the Church of Christ subsists within the Catholic Church. That's that's a huge bugaboo for a lot of trads. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, fair enough. I, I think we could go into further distinctions here, but I think this kind of gradation here. But as you just pointed out rightly regarding development of doctrine, the magisterium has not even made such a gradation as we just did just now. So even this, no. this thing that we tried to parse out a little bit here is not. That's not definitive either. We're just kind of what we're doing here, yeah. I think. And is, and oh, yeah, applause ahead. to you. Applause to you for creating the, these bullet points, you know. And, uh, you know, it, it's tough. It's, it's a very difficult issue. And, I, and I'm sorry if, if I've been a bit uh, meandering here, as I like to say, uh, and, and hard to pin down. Because I, I'm, it's, it's a serious thing to accuse people of rupture. And it's a serious thing to accuse people of heresy as well. And, I th- and there's far too much of that in the, in the church today. And so I, I'm, I'm trying very hard to sort of cast a wide net here and, and say that we, we have to avoid propositionalism, oracularism, a false positive papalism and conciliarism uh, that, that equates every single utterance of a pope or a council as the ipsissima verba dei, uh, I, I think there's great danger in that, but there's also danger in the progressive side, too, that says, oh, it's just all human creation anyway, so let's have at it. Um, the Holy Spirit is a strange bird, 
<laughs> you know, and sometimes write straight with crooked lines. The church's tradition writes straight with crooked lines, and uh, and so I'm I'm just really trying to be careful and cautious here in in how we parse this out uh, because there's a lot at stake. Yeah, absolutely, that's true. Um, and it, it would seem to me because Hake Sancta, because to my knowledge, Hake Sancta is as far as kind of at face value, Hake Sancta is attempting to teach positive error on faith or morals definitively, as far as I can tell. But I think that there's a historical dispute about what actually happened at the council that's not entirely clear among scholars today. There's also uh, various theologians have weighed, it, weighed in. So it seems to me that number five is somewhat disputed, but I do think the majority opinion is that five is impossible. And I think the yeah. universal opinion yeah. is that number six is totally impossible. Uh, yeah, I think I think five and six are impossible. And if you assert those, then you're a rupturist. Uh, I think you're getting close to be a rupturist. If you want to say that you're getting close to the line, if you affirm number four, uh, but you haven't crossed it yet. You haven't crossed okay. it. And certainly the first three, um, you know, I, I too, the, the thing about teaching error through omission is important too. you mentioned communism in Vatican two. I actually think I mean, there's some evidence that the reason why the Council Fathers did not explicitly condemn communism, two reasons. Number one, the Church had sort of committed itself already under Pius XII, then John XXIII, and then certainly under Paul VI, to the sort of Ostpolitik, to the idea that in order for us not to cause problems for those Catholics and other Christians who have to live behind the Iron Curtain, in order to not cause them grief— we're not going to explicitly condemn communism. And I think also a sort of agreement was reached with Vatican diplomacy and, and the Soviet bloc uh, that it wouldn't condemn communism in exchange for the ability of bishops from the bloc to attend the council. Um, right. So, I mean, a lot of people have pointed that out. I would rather say that the bigger omission— is in the council's failure to condemn political liberalism as inherently contrary to the gospel. Yes, I, I, I was just about to ask ask about that, but I, before I do, in defense of the rupture as traditionalist, I do think I would. I, I mean, I would. I would point out that number five, whether or not number five is possible, has not been definitively taught by the magistrate. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So therefore, it hasn't. We have the opinions of you could say number five as a minority theological opinion, not a majority. I think majority is five is impossible. But as a minority, I think that would be possible to say that. Um, Yeah. I mean, from Bellarmine on, we've been wrestling, wrestling with this question. And I think what's red pilled a lot of people into the traditionalist movement is that they reached the conclusion that Pope Francis has taught positive error on faith or morals rather definitively. But one one of the things, you know, for example, one of the things that has to be kept in mind is that actually a catechism is not a high-level authority. That's true, right. It's not really a high-level document. So uh, a lot of trads make a big deal that Pope Francis has changed, like, the the language in in the catechism, as did John Paul, on the death penalty. Now, I support the new language, full disclosure. I'm opposed to the death penalty. Nevertheless, nevertheless, um, I think people are free to disagree with it because I don't think the catechism represents definitive, authoritative... Te- it's, it's, never, it, it's never intended as that. It's yes. meant as a guidebook for Catholics, but it's not a, an official sort of high-level authoritative statement of the magisterium. That has to be kept in mind. 
Excellent. Yeah. Um, how much time do you have, Dr. Chap? I was going to take tons. I can, tons of yeah. time. Okay, no. great. Um, yeah. I wanted to bring out your your fantastic critique of liberalism in Communio. This is um, which fall 2021. This is the issue from last fall. Uh, you have a wonderful critique of liberalism called Liberalism, the Church, and the Unreality of God. Um, and you say this. This is on page 519 of this, the volume. Quote, the church in the West has made a settlement with bourgeois liberal modernity, creating a form of Catholicism, which is boring because it is ugly. Totally agree. Uh, two pages later, you say this. Quote, what thus appears as religious freedom, what John Courtney Murray portrayed as articles of peace, is in reality an article of surrender, where the terms are dictated by those who love to bear the kingdom away. And then I'll, I'll, let me explain what you meant by surrender by quoting you one more time. Liberalism admits of no limiting natural, no limiting natural authority beyond its own political power. It's very act of self-limiting that power which is based on nothing more than its own sovereignty over such matters, is itself an act of nullification, wherein no other authority beyond itself is recognized as inherently limiting on state power, end quote. So this is what uh, Charles Coulomb was pointing out, how there is sort of a naivete in 1960, and then, but now here we yes. are in 2022, where the liberal state has completely taken over everywhere uh, based on the COVID takeover and everything. Um, yeah. No, would you say... That there is, as you just said, there was obstetric regarding communism. Uh, would you say that Vatican II, in its non-definitive or just um, non-faith and moral teachings, prudential matters, uh, right. where we just agreed there can be error, would you say that Vatican II made an error uh, on the prudential level with kind of making this this obstetric with political liberalism? Absolutely, without any question. Uh, as you know, I'm a big supporter of, of the council in general, but I blogged on it. I say the council's main uh, ambiguity or flaws was a double naivete. The first naivete is something a lot of traditionists don't want to hear, and that is that the preconciliar church was already deeply unhealthy. Uh, and, and this was being noted by all kinds of, I mean, you go all the way back to literary figures like Bernanos and Moriac, philosophers like, like, like Pieper and Gilson, uh, and theologians like Guardini, Bouillet and others were already, and, and a host of others, sort of non-big names who were saying the same thing. And Joseph Ratzinger came out in 1958, young, very first bombshell article in an important German journal called uh, Hochland. And, and, and it was called The New Heathenism or The New Paganism yes. in the Church. Yes. All right? And, and, I, and, and he just blasts the Church as being basically... So, in other words, the seeds for what happened after the Council were already being developed by the lack of real formation of Catholic consciences before the Council. Uh, and and the, the Council Fathers had a naivete about that, I think. They didn't pay attention to the signs of their own times, which was that the Church was already in a state of, of decomposition because the church was already internally, it had already made this compromise with bourgeois modernity and, and, and a sort of an accommodation to the ways of Western capitalist liberal democracy. The council then doesn't, doesn't notice that the church is, is sick. It's just it's sort of 
believes that all we need is to lift the lid off the ecclesiastical libido, and all of these Catholics are, are suddenly going to be released to go out and do good things in the world. And what they discovered is that the Catholics were just waiting to mainstream into secularity because they were already secularized. Whether you know They might have had their meatless Fridays and their novenas and all that stuff, but in their hearts and souls, they thought like bourgeois moderns. And that became very clear then after the council. And that's right. the second naivete of the council. The council also thought, if we just open the windows just a bit and let in some fresh air, we'll dialogue with the world and we'll engage it. Thinking that the world was breathlessly waiting for the church to dialogue with it. It wasn't. Yes. The world was right. waiting for the church to wave a white flag and say, sorry, we've been wrong all along and you guys been right all along. And, 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 and so the church sort of has this insouciant, over-erenic attitude towards modern political liberalism as, as the sandbox in which we all have to play, instead of uttering a deeply prophetic critique, which was there in many philosophers and theologians, Maritain and others were making this critique, although Maritain was probably the most pro-liberal of, of all of the right. of all the philosophers, but even he saw the dangers inherent in them. You'd look at guys like Dietrich von Hildebrand, and they were seriously raising red flags about yeah. modern political liberalism. And Guardini certainly was. All right, so the idea that they should, should could not have known better is simply wrong. So this is an this is an example of an of an error through omission by in a sense, giving a tone and tenor to the conciliar documents that signaled the kind of approval of what was going on in Western political liberal cultures. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more with that, of course. Um, but I think in in terms of the historical situation uh and by I, the way I, can yeah. i interrupt for i wanted to add one that that failure of the council to condemn political liberalism is something that almost immediately later popes have to contend with mm. all right and so you you see john paul condemning the culture of death and you see benedict crying out against the dictatorship of relativism. Yeah. Uh, you see De Lubac immediately after the council saying, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Engagement with the world will oftentimes be a confrontation with the world, not an accommodation to the world. We simply want to open the windows in order to go out and, in a sense, and, and do intellectual sort of fist fighting with the world rather than retreating into our neo-scholastic ghettos. But it certainly wasn't to sort of capitulate. Anyway, I'm sorry I interrupted you, but I wanted to oh, get yeah, that Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Amen on all those points. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it, you mentioned Maritan as well. Maritan had a, a serious critique along these lines as well he, he described it as we're kneeling before the world something i i'm told that paul the sixth was a little angry that his mentor said that at that time after yeah. the council um but it seems to me as far as i can tell um based on the primary and secondary sources that i've looked at it appears to me that historically on a historical level we can call and this is what uh kennedy hall says uh Vatican II is the post-war council. It is addressing the post-war world. Yes. And in a sense, we can we can see why our fathers were very optimistic, especially the, our fathers who were in Western Germany or France, or especially in the United States, where Catholicism was, in fact, on the rise in the United States. But as you said, it was still extremely secular in its soul. Uh, but it, it, I think that historically, one can see why people were so optimistic when you look at the history in the 1950s what kind of like looked appeared on the surface uh you know like hollywood exporting fatima movies and uh, fulton sheen is the prime time guy you know 
But what was under the surface was all of these machinations of enemies of the church, um, psychological, social engineering. There was uh, they were about to overturn the production code in Hollywood. It actually was overturned with pornography in, during the council. Um, all of this yeah. was kind of happening under the surface and people didn't realize it. Or at least people who did realize it were sounding the alarm bells, as you said. But I think people fell for it. And I, I think that to a degree, we can understand why they did to a degree. I think, I mean, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. obviously. We can always see, see it coming a mile away. But um, what are your thoughts on some of that historical naivete? Why was it? Go ahead. Well, I think you've nailed it. I think there was uh, post-war optimism uh, in the air. Yes, the Cold War was raging really at its height i mean the council begins right around the time of the cuban missile crisis for crying out loud uh but despite that optimism was was in the air and nobody really wanted to attack political liberalism because we were still i mean remember the council started less than 20 years after the demise of hitler and, and nazism and a lot of those bishops, especially the European ones, which dominated the council, had lived through it. And theologians like de Lubac had lived through the resistance as part of it and so on. And so it, it was hard for them. You know, like, I'm 63. My parents are in their 80s. Okay. And they were, my dad was too young to fight in the Second World War. His older brother fought in the Second World War. But I, my parents had such American patriotism. I mean, they were so, because that was, that was the glow after the war, you know, we, we vanquished all of this. And now there was the shining white horse of, of Americanism and, and political liberalism. And, and you know what, adults, adults were smitten with, it. it was hard for them. It was very, very hard for them to then come out and say, you know what, the United States is actually a bigger force for evil in the world than good. Can you imagine saying that in 1962 or three, right. you know, or France or the UK in promoting, you know, their 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 agendas, uh, their, their political liberalism, you know, it, it takes a certain level of metaphysical and philosophical acumen to see to the metaphysical roots of political liberalism as to how it was eventually going to unwind. Michael Hanby, D.C. Schindler, these guys are great at this. Um, it would, it would have been hard for them to see how that was; those metaphysical entailments were there. On the surface, it was just all this optimistic. For so, I, I think you're spot on to, to say that it, it's it was the post-war council, and it it was not going to engage in this full-throated denunciation of political liberalism. And keep in mind too, the council was in some ways, and this is one of Guarino's points, Father Guarino. The council, it wouldn't say this, but it was. The council was positioning itself as a kind of anti-syllabus of errors. Okay, so where a Pius IX or a Gregory, even a Pius X comes out, or Leo XIII even would come out and say, political liberalism is dead. It is awful. It, 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 it promotes religious indifferentism and so forth. The council was not going to go down that road. Okay. It did not. It did not want to simply put a rubber stamp on the the oppositional stance towards modernity that those popes had adopted. It was going to take a more irenic stance. Now we can debate whether that was wise. I support Dign Dignitatis Humanae's endorsement of religious freedom, but uh, but I I think there is there is an element of Dignitatis 
which did not go far enough in at least acknowledging that if Mer if Merari Vos and Pius IX's syllabus of errors were wrong to deny religious freedom, they were at least right about the dangers of political liberalism and religious indifferentism. Dignitatis paid lip service to that to that idea, but it did not go far enough in seeing the truth of what those previous popes. So go back to when Pius XII and Divino Aflant, like you said, grounded its reversal in, you know, in actually something specific. I think the council, Dignitatis, should have had three or four paragraphs discussing the dangers of political liberalism and why these popes were right. Okay, showing the council's continuity with those popes, with their fears and with their concerns, and thereby contextualizing their denunciations of religious freedom properly. Okay, and therefore then setting up dignitatis humanae for saying, saying, nevertheless, despite these problems with political liberalism, you know, even a, even a blind squirrel can find an acorn once in a while, or a clock is right twice a day, political liberalism, a broken clock is right twice a day, political liberalism is right on religious freedom. I, I think it would have gone a long ways towards dispelling a lot of the issues that came up afterwards, especially with the SSPX. Well, yeah, speaking of the SSPX, um, so the just for viewers, Vatican II Council was in, in many ways certainly manipulated by the media to this conservative-liberal dichotomy. But in, in the history of the council, there was a, a strong uh, party divide in some ways, just historically. Um, yeah. We've already rejected right and left categories, but there was, in general, what is called the European Alliance, which was itself made up of later the Communio School and the Concilium School, which are diametrically opposed to one another. But they were more allied at the council, whereas the, their opposition was the so-called minority, uh, which was the Cetus Internationalis Patrum, which was led in part by Archbishop Lefebvre. So what I'm what I'm fascinated by what you said, Dr. Chap, and, and the manifesto is that in the history of the council, even in the preparatory documents, there was this big dispute between Augustine Bea, who was forwarding basically John Courtney Murray's thesis. I know you disagree with that, as yeah. you said in your article. And then yeah. you have Ottaviani. And then even from the very first session, you have a bitter dispute between the Chetus, what would become the Chetus, and the so-called European alliance. And it's not until November 17, 1965, right before it finally gets promulgated, that that modus gets added that you quoted, which is in the, um, here's the manifesto. Let me quote this quote. We reject the pernicious errors of liberalism, which removes religion from the public sphere and accept that quote. Now, you're, now in this part, you're quoting Dickens, paragraph one. And this is the thing that was added at the very end of the debate. Yeah. Strong pressure by the Chetus in part, Archbishop Lefebvre. Then you quote this, Quote, traditional, this Douglas has humanity, traditional Catholic doctrine on the moral duty of men and societies toward the true religion and toward the one church of Christ, end quote, saying that, and now this is me talking, saying that the state, the government, has a duty to confess the true faith. Um, so I found that fascinating that you, you, it sounds like you would really wholeheartedly cheer the Chetus on at the council, which is Archbishop Lefebvre, obviously. You would cheer them on. And you, it sounds like you might wish that they were more successful than they really were, and they only got this one little paragraph. 
In some ways, yes. But in reality, my sympathies lie with Wojtyla and his alignment with the uh, French bishops at the council. There is a great book out now on Dignitatis Humanae, uh, from, by, co-authored by David L. Schindler of the JP2 Institute in Washington, good friend of mine, and Nicholas Healy Jr., Dr. Nicholas Healy, who teaches at the Institute, a good friend of mine. So I'm shamelessly plugging their book, and yet it's the best stuff out there, because what this book does is it details all of the various schemata, it details all their revisions, it details all of the interventions that took place on the floor of the council beautifully. Nick Healy also had a great article in Communio several years ago, which is a kind of summation of all of this. And what, what he clearly shows is the lie that the American camp gave to Dignitatis Humanae in its spin after the council, that this was a a Murrayite document, that it was the council embracing American-style separation of church and state, and it was nothing of the sort. You see this clearly in Nick Healy's article and David L. Schindler's article. The council fathers wrestled with that idea and explicitly rejected that idea. Now, they also rejected the sort of Lefebvre, Lefebvre school, Ottaviani school, that said no religious freedom, none. That promotes religious indifferentism, and we have to maintain that the state has the right to, in a sense, enforce Catholicism. And, and the Council Fathers rejected that clearly as well. The French bishops proposed instead the idea that even if confessional states are still allowable, and even if in some sense we still adhere to the idea that the church should be given some kind of privileged status in society, we're going to, we're going to stipulate that on paper, all right, to please the, the sort of Ottavianis uh, of the council. Nevertheless, the French bishop said, and Wojtyla agreed with them, it is the, the concept of religious dignity is rooted in human religious freedom is rooted in human dignity. Now this is this is clearly hearkening back to a much much older tradition in the church. It's trying to develop continuity with the patristic era more than it is with the medieval and post medieval era in the church. And this is what was deeply contentious. But the French bishops wanted to say in the light of our inclusion in God, as you know, children of God, you know, that's the wrong way to put it, creatures made in the image and likeness of God, we have an inherent dignity. Benedict, Pope Benedict later, Joseph Ratzinger, says that the, the ultimate orientation of dignitatis in teaching that freedom is rooted in human dignity, religious freedom, is, as he said, that we need to point out the unique nature of religious truth. Religious truth is not like a mathematical truth. Religious truth, specifically in the Christian dispensation, in the Christian economy of salvation, truth is oriented to freedom. The entirety of the Gospels, the entirety of the scriptural revelation is of divine overture and human response. That's why we were created, to freely respond to the overtures of a loving God. And therefore, faith by its very nature, and this you find in the Fathers, Faith by its very nature, and you find it in Aquinas, cannot be coerced. And it's always been the teaching of the church. And therefore, Dignitatis is consistent here, that faith should not be coerced. What the council is saying is that the church has not always lived up to that principle. And if the faith cannot be coerced, why is that? 
It's because we have dignity as free beings made in the image and likeness of God for a free response to God's revelation in Christ. Error has no rights, but people who are, who are in error do because they have this dignity of freedom oriented towards the truth that must be freely appropriated. That was what the French bishops were teaching. That's what Voitiwa taught. That's what Dignitatis Humanae teaches. And someone like Jean Danielou, the resource theologian, the patristic scholar, in a great little book called Prayer as a Political Problem, endorses the idea of confessional states. Sure, sure, let's have confessional states. No problem there, because we need to enshrine Christianity in the culture. I have certain problems with some of it. But then he says, then he says no matter what we have as a confessional state, we have to have religious freedom, because it's rooted in human dignity. That is the teaching of the council. Now, do I wish that the the Feverites had gotten a stronger voice, the voice, in a sense, of Pius IX, of Gregory, of Pius X. Yes, I do. <coughs> um, but nevertheless, it is what it was. Excellent. I, I was just trying to find that, um, I forgot the paragraph in Lumen Gentium, where it, it actually does condemn uh, religious indifferentism. Um, right. Yeah, it's not I, just dignitatis. I can't remember the... Uh, the paragraph i was just searching to see if i could got it quick i don't have it um but let let me ask i'm gonna i want to get questions from the audience in just a minute have you read david wemhoff's book time life and the american proposition are you familiar with no, that no no i have okay. not read it so in that one he actually go he he went around the united states and dug up all these cia archives and the cia archives tell us that the, the cia was actually targeting the catholic church in the 1950s and 60s they were working with time uh, they put John Courtney Murray on the cover of Time uh, as a way to manipulate Dignitas Humanae as a in, during the Cold War in a in a means to uh, create the perception, as you just said, that the Catholic Church has waved the white flag to the American Empire. The American Empire is right. So it, it's, it's interesting right. some of those sources that he brings out. So um, let me see any questions. I don't see anyone addressing me. Um, there were some questions back here. Let's see if I can find them quickly um how about this i know one person was saying earlier what are some other ways that uh vatican ii did a did a reversal of some kind that was positive in your mind oh one would be uh it, it seems arcane but it's important uh the three munera M-U-N-E-R-A, of, of a bishop you know is, is, is the bishop has uh teaching authority he is uh jurisdiction you know go governing jurisdiction and oh geez and i'm drawing a blank on the third one maybe you can help me out uh, uh oh well teach uh, govern um teach sanctify okay so the, the bishop the bishop has the authority to sanctify his people by word and example he has the duty to teach and he has the duty to govern previous to vatican ii it had sort of become common teaching of the church that the bishop only gets the power to sanctify through his consecration as a bishop. The other two, teaching and governing, is an authority that is dispensed to him from the Pope, that he gets, that, he gets those powers from the Pope. Pius Twelfth affirmed that and said, yes, yes, bishops get that power. The Second Vatican Council reverses that and says that the three munera of a bishop, sanctify, teach, govern, comes with his consecration. All right, does not come from the Pope. It comes from his consecration. Now, why is that important? Because that pertains directly to Vatican II addressing the unfinished business of Vatican I, 
Vatican I defines papal infallibility, and then, of course, it disbands because of political things going on in Italy at the time, war. Okay? Vatican II wanted to redress the imbalance that had crept into the church with this sort of creeping papal bloat of authority by emphasizing that bishops also have apostolic authority that doesn't come directly from the Pope simply dispensing bits and pieces of his authority uh, to, to the bishops. And that goes to the concept of collegiality and a certain of proper ecclesial subsidiarity of authority within the church. So it's not all papal, 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 that the bishops have a true a true authority all their own that comes with their consecration. That's an example of a reversal in Vatican II that I think was very positive. Yeah, that's 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 certainly good because it, it cuts against the hyper uber ultramontanism as you you mentioned. I, I wanted to yes. I thought of I thought of Lumen Gentium twenty seven. Uh, bishops are not to be regarded as vicars of the Roman Pontus, for they exercise an authority that is proper to them. Unfortunately, yeah. many bishops still think that and act that way. Um, let's oh, yeah. get into. I, I had let's see what was the question. Um, of course. I, I, I think that the reversal Dignitatis Humani engages in with regard to religious freedom is also positive. All right. So, yeah, on that note, one question is, how can a human individual have a God-given right based on human dignity to violate a God-given commandment, first commandment? Thoughts on that? Well, because, well, I mean, because they have a God-given right to freedom of conscience. Even Aquinas taught the primacy of conscience. Now, conscience has to be formed properly, otherwise it's an erroneous conscience, and we can fall into sin, especially if we don't attend to the proper formation of our conscience. That That's a sin in and of itself. So I can't just say, well, my conscience says that, and therefore I'm okay. No, you have an obligation to form your conscience properly in the light of, of God's truth. No, So no, I don't have a God-given right to sin. I have a God-given freedom all right, that allows me to sin, and God. I mean, the. I mean, you 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 don't want to prove too much here because God's permissive will allows for a lot of evils to take place in the world, and 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 why does God allow evils? Why does He permit them to take place, even though they're against His direct will, for the sake of a greater good, and the greater good is the overcoming of evil through freedom. Uh, and so the whole dispensation of Christian salvation is oriented towards that that freedom, that non-coercive overcoming of sin through freedom. So I don't have a God-given right to sin, but I have a God-given inbuilt human dignity that permits me to be free, to permits me to do stupid things. Right. Okay. Well, here, here's an and, and and the key is is that is is that the government cannot now step in and say we're going to save you from doing stupid things, especially in the religious domain. We're going to adjudicate that you cannot do these stupid things, and we're going to force a particular religion upon you. Excellent. Uh, here's an important question, uh, Connor. As has Dr. Chap read the CDF document addressing Lefebvre on Dignitas Humanae and clearly showing how there is no good discontinuity between the document and older encyclicals. That was something. Are you familiar with this text? Uh, yeah, I am. Was, yeah. Okay. So what are your yeah, thoughts and, on that? Well, my thought is that the CDF document is is trying its best to overcome the rupture with the Lefevreites by trying to point out that the council was in continuity with the past. Okay, and in many ways it was, insofar as the CDF document wants to emphasize it. 
it wants to contextualize previous condemnations of religious freedom within the broader context of condemnations of, of, of sort of religious indifferentism, religious relativism, political liberalism, and, and, and sort of French laïcité, and so on. And so the CDF document wants to make it clear that dignitatis humanae, in affirming the, the full allowability of confessional states is in full continuity with that view. And the council in condemning religious indifferentism and relativism is in full continuity with, with, with those encyclicals. Uh, it is wrong, however, to say that the D- dignitatis humanae is in full continuity, material continuity, okay. with all previous. T- I, ju- I just think that's wrong. I just don't. I mean, I could be wrong. I've been frequently wrong. My wife lets me know I'm frequently wrong. I don't think I'm wrong about this, though. All right, all right, fair enough. Uh, and if you're not familiar, this I think previously was only available in French, but it just came out in English translation last fall, this particular document. I'm not sure what year it's from, but I'll put the English translation uh, in the show notes, as well as the two books that you mentioned, Dr. Schapp, the um, Disputed Teachings and the Dignitatis Humanae uh, review of the Schemata and the Modi and everything. Oh, it's a um, genius book, genius book. It's indispensable to this debate. Um, and then I th- I'm not sure if, Chad, you're asking about that particular thing, but we will put that book there. I know the preparatory documents are mainly in Latin. I did see one print version, I believe, that's in English, cited by E. Michael Jones in his book, Libido Dominandi. I have I don't have that text. Do you, do you know if the preparatory documents, schemata, are in English anywhere? Except there's like a blog that translated some of them. I don't know if all of them. Uh, no, I'm not aware of of any off the top of my head. Okay. Um, but but it's it's the, the the book by Schindler and Healy is is just indispensable. There's a it's a big thick book and it's it's well worth the price. Uh, what did to you go think of it. the Communio issue? I think it was last year where they did a whole spread of back and forth on dignitatis humanae did you did you go through that at all oh Is yeah um, oh yeah it was the, those i think were papers presented at a conference in washington at the communio headquarters on on dignitatis humanae and that's an indispensable issue uh, of communio mainly because it lays out all the fault lines it lays out all the debates and and, and it's important for viewers to understand <coughs> that david l schindler who has been the editor of you know, Communio of decades now, the American edition of Communio for decades now, has been, it's almost been his stock in trade. It's almost been his entire career for the past 30 or 40 years. He has written extensively against John Courtney Murray's understanding of dignitatis humanae, written against John Courtney Murray's entire approach to the concept of religious freedom. Uh, So Communio and its school of thought under David Schindler has far, far more in common with the traditional traditionalist critique, if you will, of, of, of American-style freedom of religion. More in common with that than, than it does with Murray and his crowd. Excellent. Well, yeah, that, that's that's a great volume. I don't, I don't have that one. I was still trying to find this text from Lumen Gentium, but I can't find it still. But... So, well, Dr. Chap, thanks so much for coming on the show. I think this has been a very wonderful conversation. Any final thoughts on new traditionalism? 
Oh, it's just that one of the things we didn't get a chance to talk about was liturgy. That's and, true. Uh, yes, and, I, 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 there was a question. I just left it off because it's so huge and we didn't cover it. And we'll just yeah. have to do it another time. <laughs> let's, uh, yeah, let's just say that the, the, my last word would be that one thing that we, uh, the new traditionalist movie, have in common with more Peter, Dr. Peter K. traditionalists is, is a love for beautiful liturgy and a need for genuine change in that area. Absolutely. Well, we... I, all Catholics can wholeheartedly agree with that. Uh, all yeah. pious Catholics who love the dogma of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Absolutely. The beauty yeah, absolutely. of the Mass to offer pure worship to God. Um, so, fantastic. Well, Dr. Chap, thank you so much. Uh, we'll thank have, you. Uh, this is link, great. Yeah, a, a link to uh, Gaudium at Spes um, below in the show notes. That is, or at least, is it Gaudium at Spes? Gaudium at Spes22.com. Yes. Yeah, so that is uh, Dr. Chav's blog. Uh, the link below is to the, the actual manifesto, uh, so you can take a look at that. Uh, so thanks, Dr. Chav. Let's offer up a, a Hail Mary at the yes. end of this conversation um, yes. to entrust everything to Our Lady, of course. Uh, we've been trying to promote, uh, in view of the war in Ukraine, we've been uh, trying to promote devotion to Our Lady of Fatima under this icon, which is in Church Slavonic, Slavonic uh, written by an Orthodox Christian. Um, and so we'll just pray a Hail Mary for in front of this icon of Our Lady of Fatima, uh, praying always for peace in Ukraine and for our brethren there, um, yes. and also for the intentions of this conversation, which is to unite Catholics against the enemies of Holy Church. Uh, and I, th I thank you, Dr. Chap, for, uh, and, and your cooperators for writing this manifesto as a means to dispute with your friends. And so I, I'm, I'm glad we could dispute among friends just now. So let's oh, offer absolutely. up a, a Hail Mary. In the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus is King.